This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! So this is Buzz Knight. I'm the host of the Taking a Walk podcast series. And one of the things I love about the Taking a Walk series is I get to uh, connect with a lot of old friends, but I get to reconnect with new friends. But Jonathan Soroff, for my time in Boston, I feel like I've known you since you've been here forever uh, being the pulse of Boston, so it's nice to <laughs> formally meet you. Likewise, thank you. I've known your voice forever, so... So we're at this amazing place, the Public Garden mm-hmm. in Boston, uh, one of my favorite places, and I know yours. For those that don't know about this beautiful place, uh, set the scene. So this park was built in the late 19th century. Frederick Law Olmsted designed it um, as uh, the beginning of the Emerald Necklace, which is a, a series of parks that sort of encircle Boston. But this was landfill. Um, this was originally all um, salt marsh. And it's across the street from the oldest park in America, the Boston Common. And, you know, I just, I'm so proud of this place because it was such a visionary thing for Bostonians in the late 19th century. You know, all these beautiful trees here that you see that are three stories tall, they were little saplings. They knew that it was not going to look like this for a hundred years. And now you have, you know, the iconic swan boats on the swan pond. You have the world's smallest suspension bridge going over the swan pond. You're surrounded by the city, but you feel like you're just in this oasis. And it's, it's it, it, no matter what the time of year is, uh, in the middle of the winter or now, it is absolutely stunning. I'll put this park up against any park or garden in the world. And I've bumped into tourists from everywhere in the world, Japan and and France and England and wherever places that are known for gardens, and they all marvel at how incredibly beautiful it is. It really is. It's special. I miss coming here as regularly as I used to because I would, uh, you know, 
have my routine in the morning, uh, you know, stop uh, at the gym over on Boylston, but before going to the gym, have to walk through, you know, this place here and, you know, just watch people and just take in the beauty. I, I purposefully, if I'm in a bad mood, I purposefully make a point of putting this somewhere on the route so that I walk through here because it never fails to kind of lift my spirits. We're going to come back to that because I'm going to follow up on that uh, that piece of the uh, interview a little bit later. Do you remember the first time that you came here? Oh, I had to have been a child. I remember being very young and my parents taking me on the swan boats. Um, but I was born and raised in Boston. Um, neither of my parents were, so they were transplants. And when we were kids, they brought us to every sort of landmark in Boston because they were experiencing it for the first time. So this was, you know, a place. And I remember my friends in school, I went to an independent school. So when you go to a private school, you have, you know, friends who live everywhere. So I lived out in the suburbs, but I had lots of friends on Beacon Hill and we would we would run around. This was our playground, and where we misbehaved during high school. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, did you ever imagine, as somebody who grew up in this area, you would leave and go to Duke, right, to college, yeah, and that you would come back here, and that you would have this job where you get to soak in the beauty of the community did you ever is that what you set out to do no so not not <laughs> a, not hear, even a let's little let's hear let's hear no. the story so i grew up my parents divorced when i was about 8 years old and my father moved to new york because he had an opportunity to build a hospital and a hospital he was a surgeon uh, and to, to build a hospital to his specifications and to put together like a world class so anyway he moved to new york and so I partially grew up in New York a little bit because I, was, I went to see him every other weekend. And I thought in college and high school, I pictured my adult life in New York. And then I graduated from college and it was time to find a job and get a life. And I realized that what I did when I visited my father, like going to the theater, going out to dinner, all those things were never going to happen on whatever salary I was going to make. And all of a sudden, New York went from being this place I always envisioned myself living to being someplace I had zero desire to live. <laughs> and I came back to Boston, and I my only sort of real skill was writing. And I sent my resume to every publication in, you know, in the Boston area. And the Boston Herald hired me when I was right out of Duke, and that was the beginning of my career. Yeah, so you were at the Boston Herald for a few years. I was there for about four years, yep. and I was, they, it was wonderful, um, despite the fact that I worked for Rupert Murdoch, which... <laughs> Looking back is something that's somewhat objectionable to me. Um, I they you gave me, you didn't know how, how objectionable it would be. No, and it was very different back then. But I also um, they gave me just tremendous opportunities. Um, I was an editorial assistant on the city desk, which means I wrote obituaries, and I did the weather page, and I did like. You know, spot news, little things like, you know, somebody spotted a whale in Charlestown or some, you know. And they took me from that to they let me write about um, nightlife. I guess they noticed that I came in hungover to work at something. <laughs> what year was this, by This the way? is 1987-88. Okay. Uh, I graduated from Duke in 87, so 1988. And so they gave me the beat of nightlife 
columnist. And I also did a lifestyle trends, like, you know, what's the latest book to read? What's the latest restaurant to go to? What's, you know, the coolest movie? And so I was this kid, and I was getting paid to go out at night, which I was going to do anyway. (laughs) And they let me um, go to the best new restaurants and the, you know, it was the most unbelievable opportunity and I owe the Boston Herald a huge debt of gratitude and Ken Chandler, who was the editor then, who could have said, you know, who the hell is this kid? He took a major roll of the dice on me and I, I'm forever indebted. It was on-the-job learning, I'm taking it, Absolutely. I remember the first story I ever did, you know, I I very quickly learned how to do obituaries, (laughs) which are very formulaic. Um, But the first story I had to write, I just seized up. And I forget who the columnist was, but one of the the Herald's big columnists, he saw that I was struggling with this news story. And he said, just write like you're talking to a milkman from Topeka, Kansas. And I was like, okay. And that was how I got my first, you know, story done because I was just terrified. Absolutely terrified. And that was, uh, that time, certainly in a lot of cities, Boston included, um, those of us that certainly sort of followed journalism and print journalism, it was really kind of a gift to be a two-newspaper town, really, right? Absolutely, and it's very important. Um, You know, I certainly exist at one end of the political spectrum, but I have many people who are very close to me who exist at the absolute opposite end of the political spectrum, and we have to talk to each other, um, and not talking and not having more than one voice is, I think, harmful to democracy. And as much as, you know, I feel strongly about my views, I understand other people feel strongly about theirs. And once you stop, once it gets so loud, all the shouting and the sort of living in an echo chamber, um, that's when things really become problematic. So it's very important to have, you know, to be, uh, I mean, the number of, of... communities that the small community newspapers um, that don't exist anymore, the number that have closed down, the, it's just, it's, it's very disheartening and I don't think it's healthy for our society or for the democracy. And they've been, yeah, gobbled up by larger entities, basically. Some of them don't have don't anything, have right, yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, Tip O'Neill was the one who said, all, lose, all news is local. And he's absolutely right. And I will say, so... I never read the Herald before I went to work there. I grew up in a household where we got the Boston Globe, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and that was it. And so I went to work for the Herald, and there was this attitude, you know, there was a sort of intellectual, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, academic attitude that the Herald was not quite up to snuff. Well, I will tell you... At the time, and still I think to this day, the Herald breaks local news because the person who's, you know, emptying the, the, the waste paper baskets in the state house isn't a globe reader necessarily. They're probably a Herald reader, and if they come across something incriminating or, you know, something, they're going to go to the Herald with that information. So we broke really, really important local news stories. And the people who worked at the Herald were just incredible journalists. You know, and and this idea that, you know, the sort of 
high and mighty idea that the Herald was not, you know, that it was a tabloid or that it wasn't a good newspaper. Absolute nonsense. Um, my days there, we broke, you know, the Charles Stewart story, uh, which was, you know, a terrible murder situation. Um, we broke Lockerbie, I think. Um, I was one of the first people to know about the Lockerbie explosion, the, the plane, uh, only because I was working overnight. And the phone call came from, uh, Nova, it came from the Canadian, um, the Canadian, uh, whatever it is, the equivalent of the Coast Guard or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I answered the phone, and they were like, there's been wow. a, a plane, uh, you know, over Scotland that was headed for, you know, and, and I was one of the first people in the United States to know about it. Wow. You remember exactly that moment. Oh, God, yeah. You were, yeah. You were there. It was horrible. God. Yeah. I was close enough in age to, there was a lot of kids coming back from semest- semesters abroad. And so I was still close enough to that age, and I knew people who had siblings on the plane. Oh my God! So yeah, it was crazy. Oh my um, God. So, wow. but there were a lot of things like that, and I'll never forget um, the reporter's name. Her name was Michelle Caruso, and she's gone on to do amazing things. Uh, and she was an amazing reporter, the most dogged. But she came back in as soon as the Charles Stewart story. When he was a man who. He, his wife was pregnant. They were supposedly coming from a Le Mans class, and he said that they were carjacked. Um, he said the guy was African-American and that he had killed the wife, who was pregnant, and shot him, and he was shot, like, in the leg. And we were all in the newsroom when she came back from the initial press briefing or whatever it was, and she said, he did it. And we were like, oh, my God, you're so cynical. That is the sickest thing I've ever heard. And she said, I just... I think he did it. Wow. And I don't know how much later, it was probably weeks or it could have even been months, he, you know, it, they determined that he was the killer and that it was a whole setup and he um, he threw himself from the Tobin Bridge. Yes. Well, what that un- unbelievable story. Wow. But yeah, wow. I just remember thinking, oh my God, Michelle, that's so sick. Who would ever like, that's like the darkest thing. And it turns out she was right. 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 Well, paint this picture right now, Jonathan. This is so beautiful. And there's actually on a near 100-degree day, there's actually a little breeze coming off yeah. here. The, because the of all the shade trees. Look at these unbelievable weeping willows and oaks. And I don't even, I'm not good at identifying trees. But that's what I was talking about before. You know, when this place was originally designed and built, the people who built it we're never going to see it reach this point of incredible beauty. These are all, you know, little saplings. Uh, they certainly didn't throw this kind of shade. Um, and, you know, the, who, you know, who knew that this was going to be the, it was, I don't know, 1877, I think, when the, when the, or no, sorry. You know what, I don't know the date. But whenever the, the uh, swan boat started, I mean, there's nothing more iconically Boston than those swan boats. I mean, look at that. I know. It's magnificent. It is. So I just don't know how the drivers do it. They're, they're, they're all pedaling those things. Right. Those are pedal boats. It's so good to see them back, right? Yeah. So. And the same family, I believe, it's, I believe that the, the Paget family still owns the concession for the swan boats. That's awesome. Um, and they've had it since the, the inception. That's awesome. My God. So then, after the Herald, you went to Improper Bostonian. So, yeah. So, um, I was at the Herald for about four years uh, until the early 90s. And then an old um, 
copy editor from the Herald, she had gone to work for this completely crazy, scrappy, nobody's ever heard of it, slapped together publication called The Improper Bostonian. <laughs> and she, they were looking for someone to do a social column. And because I had done the nightlife column, I kind of had the, the sort of feel for it. And um, I, you know, I at the time, I think I was freelancing, and freelancing is a tough thing to make a living doing. And so they called me and they said, do you want to do this? And I said, absolutely. And I was still freelancing, but it was a regular gig. And that was 30 years ago now because we were in publication for 20... We, we, we shut down in 2019, but that was in the early 90s. And I started out... It was tabloid format, unbound, newsprint, black and white. And then slowly we went to color. Slowly as we grew, we went to perfect bound. Then we went to glossy. And we had a good... 20-something years as a really gorgeous magazine, and the last issue we printed was as nice as, was as good as any issue we ever printed. There was never a decline, and I'm really proud of that. And a lot of people say, you know, oh, I miss the improper, and the improper was so great. It's a, absolutely, I do too. It was the most fun thing ever, and I'm very proud of it. But we had a 28-year run. It's amazing. Yeah. Most magazines don't get 28 issues. We put out two issues a month for 28 years. That's incredible. Yeah. It was, it was a hell of a feat. Is it fair to say, as I observed this, I observed you really finding your voice and your style and your rhythm uh, in terms of, you know, your brand uh, during that run uh, because they gave you a lot of rope to hang yourself. Is Absolutely, that fair? Absolutely, yeah. They gave me, like, basically... Like you could do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and we got away with a lot of... Right. We, we wrote some outrageous... We published some outrageous things that were just hilarious. We were always... There was a period where we did some hard news, but we quickly got away from that and really concentrated on arts and entertainment and the cultural life and sort of the social life of the city, which there was nobody really reporting on that. And if they did, they were doing it in a way that was very kind of, you know, journalism school, who, what, where, why, and when. We were doing it in a very cheeky, irreverent, snarky way. So I started doing the social column and then my editor, Nancy Gaines, who's a brilliant, brilliant editor, and she was one of the people really responsible for making the improper grow into what it became. She said, I think you're really good at interviewing people. And so she gave me another column. But I did the social column, but then she did this. She came up with the idea, Soar Off On, and it was uh, an interview in every issue. And I interviewed everyone from, I mean... Yeah, let's talk about some of your favorites. Uh, well, so when people say the favorites, like, the favorites that come to mind are the ones who are gone now, like the Julia Child, who I had, like, a friendly acquaintance with, and she was amazing. Yeah. Maya Angelou, Mike Wallace, like, these tremendous, Art Buckwall, these people who were giants in their fields who are, you know, who are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. But then on the other end of the spectrum were the people where I was like, oh, they're going on the cover, and they're 23 years old, and they've done one TV show, what could they possibly have to say? And then I'd talk to them, and, and we'd end up becoming friends, because I would prejudge them and say, oh, they have nothing to say, and they were ended up being really cool, fun, fascinating people. Yep. 
So it's, yeah, I mean, everybody from, you know, and it was just fun because, again, they let me, you know, they gave me the rope to hang myself with. I would ask outrageous questions. There was, uh, I forget... I think it might have been one of the guys from Baywatch, David Chokichi, who is still a friend. I think my first question to him in the interview was, so you want to make out? (laughs) There's nothing like getting to the point. Right. It could have gone either way. Um, He just laughed and he was like, "Um, uh, yeah, but my wife might might not like that. Yeah. Um, But they allowed me to ask these questions that were kind of just off the wall. Yeah. And... I think that's what people gravitated to because I would just kind of ask these questions that in a million years, you know, another publication would say, what the hell are you asking these people? Like, this is crazy. And people really, really ate it up. And the, the subjects, I'll never forget doing an interview. He was doing, um, he was promoting a movie, but Matt Damon, and we were the first magazine that really gave Matt Damon and Ben Affleck any attention before Good Whittle Hunting. Um, and... I did an interview with Matt Damon, and when I turned off the the recorder, he said, that was the most fun interview I've done all day, or all I've, I've ever done. And I was like, why didn't I get that on? And I've had, I've had several, I'm lucky enough to have several people say that to me. That's awesome. Who did you learn from in terms of your interview style? I didn't. I learned on the job. I learned on the go. Um... I'm still learning. Um, and sure, there were people, there were, there were two or three people who shut it down because they were like, this is not what I was expecting. This is not, and, you know, fine. But that happened over 30 years, very, very rarely. So then, ultimately, you've migrated over to... Boston Magazine. Another enduring publication, yep. Boston Magazine. So are you having fun? Yeah, I love it. Um, it's a very different beast because it's um, a bigger magazine. Uh, the culture is much more corporate. Um, I have like more than one editor. I have fact checkers who will ask me things like, you know, I did a travel piece about a, an island in the in the Caribbean, and they said I got this email. No, I can't. I can't confirm anywhere that. On the boat ride from the airport to the hotel, they give you a rum drink. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I had a rum drink on the boat. Like, that's as good as it's going to get. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's a very different piece. But at the same time, it's reassuring, reassuringly familiar. And it's just a great, an amazing staff. And I think the magazine looks great. We had our big party last night, our best of Boston party, and it was amazing. Oh, that's great. Now, where was the party? Um, it was on, in the seaport at one of the old cruise ship terminals. And uh, a lot of the winners, uh, the restaurants provided food. There was, you know, all the, a lot of the advertisers provided, you know, beer and wine and liquor. And it was just a great crowd. And people are so excited to win an award like that. And it's funny because I only, you know, it's a big issue. And we did a competing one, which we, we kind of tried to steal Boston Magazine's thunder when I was at the Improper. And when we started it, I wrote the whole thing by myself, which was a beast. And this time, you know, I just contribute like a very, very tiny bit. But all these people who I had nothing to do with it are sending me thank you emails and messages, texts. 
saying thank you for the for the best Boston award, and I'm like, I had nothing to do with it, but you're welcome. <laughs> now, as somebody who has his finger on the pulse of uh, the community, you know, thinking of how horrible it's been the last few years, um, what's the current vibe of you know the restaurants and you know, entertainment uh, these days? I think it is rebounding and it's going to be bigger than ever. I think that we're entering the roaring 20s. Um, If there's such a thirst for, especially after the pandemic, to get out and to um, go out to dinner or to go see a movie or a play or the opera or the ballet or the symphony. I mean, and this, the thing about this city and one of the things that makes me proud, so proud to be from here, we're tiny. It's a tiny little city. We punch so above our weight. If you're a music fan, first of all, you have the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which the hall is... The, one of the world's two acoustically perfect concert halls with one of the world's greatest symphony orchestras. That's one end of the spectrum. Then you have the schools like the New England Conservatory, Jordan Hall. You, anybody, any city in the world would proud, be proud to call the students who perform in that hall their symphony orchestra. Then at the absolute other end of the, or, uh, of the, of the uh, spectrum, Emmanuel Church on Newbury Street. It's a beautiful, uh, you know, neo-Gothic church, Episcopalian. They're one of the few churches, I think maybe two churches in the world, that perform Bach's liturgical music in the order, in liturgical order. And it's magnificent. Um, And that's just classical music. Uh, You know, I'm on the board of Boston Ballet, and we are one of the world's elite ballet companies. Um, We are, you know, the Museum of Fine Arts is an encyclopedic art museum. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is one of the best house museums in the world. The Nichols House Museum on Beacon Hill is a fascinating glimpse of Victorian era, you know, America. And you have all these things in this tiny little city, and it's like... You can walk from one side of the city to the other in, I don't know, an hour or two, but you have everything in the world. Tremendous walking city is, is one of those great joys, obviously, and we're, we're taking a walk. But, yeah, the neighborhoods, obviously, are Absolutely. just so uh, unique. So, um, you know, from the outside, if you were speaking to someone who isn't a Bostonian um, and you would try to address any bad raps Boston has, what would you say to them? So I think that people have a very outdated notion about what this city is. At the In the early 21st century, this city is leading the way. It's not accidental that the coronavirus vaccine was, you know, we're less than two miles away from where it was invented. Um, this city is not, people think it was. it's a racist city. Yes, we have our problems, and yes, race is still an issue in this city, but we have come so far from the days of busing. It is a much more diverse, much more inclusive, much more eclectic city than it was then. And it's also growing like a mushroom. I mean, the whole seaport district, that didn't exist 15 years ago. That was a bunch of, you know, uh, train yards and, and cruise ship terminals and, and docks. And now you have this incredibly vibrant uh, neighborhood. Um, it's just not what people, it's not stodgy old Boston. This is not your grandfather's Boston. 
it's very it's very much a city of the 21st century and becoming more more of one every day well i have another take also on the racism piece which of course it exists here it exists other places it exists everywhere it exists everywhere but I wanted to get your reaction to this. I think part of the, the, the problem is we have, we're have we an amazing sports city, obviously, with completely crazy, passionate fans. And I didn't even mention that part. I'm not a big sports fan. That's the only reason. But, sure. Yeah. But I think part of the you know perception issue as well is if you watch the games, uh, there's generally not many people of color in the stands. Uh, and I think... You know, in general, um, isn't it harder for anybody, the common person, whether they be black or white, to afford to go to these games? Well, I think that's a huge, I mean, that's that speaks to, you know, inequities and, in, you know, built-in inequities and... Um, in general. And, yeah, and, and systemic problems, but yes, and the people, you know, who can't afford, but I think that's changing. I did an interview... Um, within the last six months, I think, unless time is, uh, with Tommy Amaker, who he and I were at Duke. I was at Duke when he was playing for Duke, and he's now the head coach at Harvard. And one of my questions for him was, you know, he grew up in either uh, Baltimore or Virginia, like near the, the, the D.C. area. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I asked him was, do you, have you and your wife found, a, you know, Boston to be as racist as people you know, say, um, and he was like, absolutely not. We have had nothing but a wonderful experience. Maybe that's an anomaly. Maybe it's not. Um, but yeah, the perception, I think perception and reality really diverge. And some of it is optics because, you know, who can afford to go to, who can afford, I mean, I know what my brother pays for his season tickets to the Red Sox. It's crazy. Um, but then again, you know, if you really love the Red Sox, if you really love the Celtics, if you really love, you're going to go see them no matter what. You'll fi- you'll figure out a way. I think I heard the other day the average price for a family of four to go to the Red Sox game is three hundred and forty-five dollars or some right. such thing. Yeah. So I mean, that's an expensive uh, night out, but uh, it's an amazing place to go see a game. Obviously, for sure. So yeah, in closing, uh, I want to come back to the notion that you put up about this beautiful place that we've been fortunate to take a walk and how it's a bad mood altering place which I love right and really I I can identify with that Um, what other places in the Boston area uh, have that same effect oh I think there's so many I would say the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has that effect I think if you walk along the waterfront the 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 uh, the pathway along the harbor. I think that um, sitting and drinking uh, coffee in the North End. I think that uh, just walking down the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, uh, going to you know, going to see um, something at the Strand Theater, going to Franklin Park. Um, my nephews were at the zoo last week and they were like, you know, their heads exploded. They were so happy. There's just so many everywhere in the city. There is something absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I just really love it. You know, just walking down, walking down any street in this city, you're going to come across something that's going to surprise you, delight you 
and sort of leave you with a feeling of, wow, this place is really, really cool. Yeah, Newbury Street, my God, one yeah. of the greatest walking cities. We're right near, uh, discovered it in the last few years, the new Newbury Hotel where the old Ritz-Carlton was with that amazing restaurant up there, Contessa, Absolutely. which uh, I better get in line uh, six oh, yeah. months in advance, but uh, a sensational take and a beautiful building, beautiful staff. Well, full disclosure, I'm on uh, the board of advisors for the trustees of the reservations, but we are, we, we are creating uh, a park on the waterfront in East Boston, um, and... If you if you haven't been to East Boston to the waterfront in a while, it's magnificent. If you haven't been to Nubian Square in Roxbury in a long time, it is unbelievable. If you haven't checked out the cool shops in JP and Roslindale, unbelievable. Like you you think that you're in like a cool weird neighborhood in London or like the groovy place in Brooklyn. It's just incredible. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm so grateful that uh, you and I got to take a walk. It would not be a special Boston edition if it didn't have your stamp on it and your insights and your passion for this wonderful place. And uh, thank you for all the the great work over the years. Okay, last question. Who that you haven't interviewed do you really want to interview? Oh, that's funny. Um, right now I'm waiting, um, and I, ha- I think I have interviewed him in the past, but I'm waiting for Steven Tyler's publicist to get back to me about whether or not I'm going to interview him. I'm not, a- I'm not sure I'm supposed to say that, but I actually have a funny story because Ben Affleck, I've never actually interviewed him. I've interviewed his brother, and he, he told me that he has the cover from the improper in a- framed in his office in L.A., um, and... He came here to do a screening of one of his movies, and I left before... I got to the party afterwards when it was just him and his his assistant and his publicist. And I walked in and I said, Jesus Christ, Affleck, I, w- I wasn't sure you had it in you. And he was like, that's really wonderful to hear. Thank you. And he said something about the interview that I had done with Casey. And I said, yeah. And I said, you've never been on our cover. And he said, why is that? And I was like, I don't know. We've tried a million times. <laughs> I just don't know. And so there are a couple of big Boston icons. I'm not sure I've ever... I've interviewed the rest of the Wahlbergs. I'm not sure I've ever interviewed Mark. Um, I've interviewed... Yeah, there aren't that many people. And I'm really thankful for the sort of the iconic Boston people who I have. But, you know, there are one or two who have slipped through the net. But I'll get to them eventually. I love it. Don't give up, right? Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan, for taking a walk. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.